of the laws of war. Uh, so thank you all for being here. It, it's, it's really an honor and a great pleasure. And so let me just uh, share uh, the presentation that, that I prepared for, for today. <clears throat> okay. Um, so I, I'm going to start with, with something that may be a bit uh, unexpected for a presentation on a, on a book of the history of ideas uh, uh, around the laws of war. Uh, but I want to start with, with, with drones, uh, uh, just to give you a sense of the contemporary perplexities that have motivated my study of the intellectual history of the laws of war. Uh, and, and this is a quote from President Obama's uh, famous speech in 2000. And let me just move things a little bit here. Um, uh, President Obama's speech uh, introducing he, his drone and counter-terror policy in 2003. So I'm just going to read a short passage from that speech. Uh, <clears throat> President Obama said, under domestic law and international law, the United States is at war with Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and their associated forces. We are at war with an organization that right now would kill as many Americans as they could if we did not stop them first. So this is a just war, a war waged proportionally in last resort self-defense. Uh, so I, I just want to underline here the, the, the importance that for Obama had to, to claim that this, this war was consistent with international law and was uh, consistent also with principles of just war, proportionality, necessity, last resort. Uh, and uh, as we all know, uh, this uh, drone warfare has extended and expanded in the world um, to many areas uh, in ways that look very different from what we would understand as uh, hostilities or as a battle uh, you know, in any sort of standard or, or, or uh, paradigmatic understanding of war, drone warfare looks very different and, and, and it's been extending. There has been drone attacks and in military, in the context of military operations or alleged military operations by the US, also the UK, Israel, France, Russia, Turkey, in many places of the world, including Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, and Gaza. Uh, there are websites dedicated to counting the, the, the deaths that have been uh, caused by these attacks. There have been uh, tens of thousands of civilian casualties. Uh, and, and the question here is, uh, so the, the states using these, these technologies, these tactics, uh, have been uh, defending them as being uh, necessary and proportional and consistent with the norms of humanitarian law, uh, the, 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 the urgency of, of targeting, of killing those, those individuals is such that the collateral damage uh, uh, is, is, is proportional and is admissible within the, 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 the norms and the principles of humanitarian law. Uh, but this way of understanding or framing these attacks have been challenged, uh, notably but but the former UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killings, Christoph Heinz, who in 2013 published a, a very well-known report uh, arguing that these attacks should not be seen as part of a war, so not actions within uh, or in a context of hostilities, but rather as uh, extrajudicial killings, uh, because they should be seen within the framework of human rights law. Uh, so the, the, the perplexity here is that depending on the legal framework that you use to uh, account for or describe these actions, you may uh, see the consequences either as murder, killing uh, by uh, state authorities, by public authority, or as legitimate use of force to deter or stop uh, threats, imminent threats, and with some collateral damage that can be uh, absorbed or justified or, or yeah, uh, 
by the, the proportionality rule of IHL. Uh, so this is the these and similar uses of force frame as part of a, a, a war or in a context of hostilities uh, gives uh, uh, or motivates a, a set of, of uh, more general questions. Um, so the first and most direct one is why would framing an action as undertaken in a context of hostilities, why would that make more per, uh, permissible uh, the use of more destructive force than is allowed in peacetime? Why would the frame uh, change what, uh, what we take to be permissible uh, military action or, or permissible force? Uh, and also related to this, why should states and only states have the uh, quote right to participate directly in hostilities? And this is the phrase that appears in additional protocol, uh, in the additional protocol to the one to the Geneva Conventions, Article uh, 43.2. Uh, and this is also a, a question very close to the work that ILAC has been doing. Uh, the people associated with ILAC at Oxford, why should even aggressive states have such right to participate in hostilities? Why sh shouldn't we deem their use of lethal force uh, murder rather than legitimate military action or participation in hostilities? Uh, now, what I, what I do in the book is not really try to answer these questions, but rather try to understand how we got there, how we ended up having these questions and these perplexities. And one way to describe the work that I do in the book is uh, to look at the construction, the historical construction of a very specific juridical and normative language on the use of force. Uh, and, and specifically, I, I'm really interested in the articulation and systematic defense of concepts such as hostilities, belligerent power, combatant civilian, direct participant, military advantage, among others. Uh, and the way I do this, the way I do this investigation into the making of the language of the laws of war is through a, a study of the history of political and legal international thought. And my understanding here is uh, of, of these theories as generating concepts uh, that constitute and configure public action and repertoires of legitimations on the use of force. So I read these theories as, in a way, ideologies of state force, of uh, ways to, to uh, justify, but also constrain and limit the use of force by sovereign states. Uh, and, and I keep in mind very sort of at the center of, of my, my reading of these sources, how these theories contribute to the articulation of normative language and of associated practice of public legitimization. Uh, so the one, perhaps the most important criterion that I use for selecting the sources that I use, that I study in the book is how influential, actually influential they were historically, politically, legally, and all the sources that I use were hugely influential, meaning their books were edited multiple times, translated into multiple languages, uh, cited, uh, used not, not only by other lawyers, but uh, uh, public actors, statesmen, military men, etc. So that, that's part of, of my interest in, in these very influential sources is, is the fact that they were so important in constituting these languages. Now, I take the book to make uh, three main contributions. Uh, the first and most obvious one is to the history and theory of the laws of war. And here specifically, I, I, I make a contribution to the, uh, as it were, 
prehistory of the laws of war, uh, because I go way back, way before the, the codification in the, at the end of the of the 19th century. Um, there's been a great deal of interest in the history, in, in the history of international law, history and theory of international law, and in particular of the laws of war in the last decade or so. Uh, but uh, most of that work on the laws of war has stopped at the end of the of the 19th century and with the idea that the modern laws of war really begin with the codification efforts that took place there um, but what i show in the book is actually i go back to the end of the 16th century and, and alberico gentili is a very important figure in, in, in this in this history of the initial figures um, and what i show is that there is this whole uh, construction of languages and, and of understandings of war uh, way before the codification efforts, and in fact, uh, those th that that prehistory, that background, that theoretical background, was crucial for the codification because it provided the the, the shared understanding of diplomats, military men, and juries that participated in that codification. Uh, in particular, the way the laws and customs of war were understood in the Enlightenment were a very very important uh, element in in an in inheritance. If you if you will, uh, for, for those late 19th century um, uh, instruments. Uh, the second uh, contribution I take to be to critical international legal studies. And here, one of the, of the payoffs of, of doing this historical work is to denaturalize and to historicize constitutive concepts of the laws of war. And I'm very interested in doing that, that, that work of, of, of looking afresh, as it were, seeing uh, with, 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 with the perspective of history, seeing the present differently. And, and that's a work that, that one can uh, do through theory and through history. Uh, and, and in particular, something that I was very interested in is in recovering and conveying a sense of the ambivalence and the moral dilemmas that many of these theories uh, face when they were articulating the language of the laws of war. Uh, Hugo Grotius in particular was very ambivalent, very torn when he introduced some crucial concepts. The Enlightenment thinkers, not as much, uh, but they also had their, their misgivings and the late 19th century humanitarians, very much so. Uh, so one of the, the lessons, if you will, of, of, this, of this historical study uh, is, uh, or one of the payoffs again, or benefits is, is to allow us to reassess the legitimating power of the laws of war today, to look at the laws of war differently and to understand better their origins and their, their present structure. Uh, and finally, my field is international studies. So I also uh, do, I also contribute to international, to IR theory, uh, specifically to, 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 um, to a better understanding of the role of concepts, ideas, and norms in state practices of security and violence. Security and violence have traditionally, traditionally not so much anymore, but traditionally were the subject of the so-called realist school in IR theory, not so much of constructivist. Well, I'm contributing as, as many others have been doing over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, to showing how important ideas, concepts, and, and norms are also for, for ideas of security and the use of force. Uh, so let me now give you sort of uh, an overall map of the of the um, of the history that I cover in, in the book. Um, so as I mentioned before, I begin with this with the Spanish scholasticism. Uh, this is the late uh, 16th century and beginning of the of the 17th century with, with Francisco Suarez. 
Uh, but I, I look at, at Spanish scholasticism uh, really to better understand uh, the contribution of, of Hugo Grotius. Um, and, and, and here my, my, my claim is that Hugo Grotius has been a, an incredibly important intellectual figure in the history of the loss of war. Uh, and and I, I focus, and I'll tell a little bit more about this uh, uh, shortly, I focus on, on a distinction that Grotius introduced in his great book, The Jurebeliac Pakis, between what he called just war and, and what he called solemn war. So Bellum Justum on the one hand, which he took really quite directly from the scholastics, and then solemn war, Bellum Solemne, which is, uh, his, his own term, and uh, I would say a novel concept that he introduced, but it's also indebted to, to a tradition of thought that came from the stu students of Roman law, including uh, Gentili. Uh, but, but my claim is that this concept of solemn war really is, it creates the, it, it's the seed, as it were, of, of what later became the modern laws of war. Uh, and, and then how I proceed in the book is by one century jumps, as it were. I jump from Hugo Grotius, early modernity to the Enlightenment. Uh, and here my main characters are Christian Wolf and, and, and Emer de Vatel. And the key concept that they that they propose and, and, and elaborated is the concept of regular war, which is uh, a descendant in a way of the concept of solemn war. It has differences, important differences, but the lineage can be traced very clearly. There's a clear continuity. And finally, I make another jump to the 19th century. And here Francis Lever is a very crucial figure for me. Uh, because I show that Lieber took these enlightenment ideas of regular war to the 19th century quite directly in the famous Lieber Code that Abraham Lincoln commissioned for, for the Union side in the American Civil War. Uh, but then in the 19th century, the other uh, hugely important event is the emergence of humanitarianism uh, and the, in particular the, the uh, juridical adaptation of humanitarian uh, the humanitarian movement uh, and the impulse to 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 turn that that impulse into codified law so I, I reconstruct at the end of the book this convergence in a way or clash rather uh, between uh, the, the tradition of regular world that comes from early modernity and this humanitarian uh, movement that it's more uh, proper of the 19th century, <clears throat> and that it's intention with many of the basic tenets of regular war. Um, now, what I want to do with the rest of the time that I have um, is to uh, just focus on three uh, moments of this of this longer history that I that I that I tell in the book. Uh, and the first is just to tell you a bit more uh, about this distinction in Grotius between solemn war and just war then tell you a little bit about how Wolf and Vatel thought about the use in Bello in regular wars, and in particular, why they thought that regular wars would be limited, constrained. And finally, I wanna tell you a little bit about the clash or the tensions, tensions that were produced when humanitarians tried to influence this tradition of regular war that was coming from the Enlightenment. And I, I also wanna show uh, give you a sense of how this um, uh, intellectual history uh, ends in, in the positive instruments of the late 19th century. So sort of to give you a sense of how these histories are, uh, how these ideas in history became or were turned into codified instruments. So let me begin then with, with, with Grotius. I, I, I don't think Grotius need, needs an introduction here and I, I won't be giving one, uh, but, but I just wanna emphasize uh, two, uh, two um, 
I don't know, episodes, historical episodes that were uh, hugely important for Grotius when he was writing the Eurebeliac Pakis. Uh, remember, it, this book was published in 1625. Ended with the Peace of Westphalia, which according to many is sort of the beginning of the modern system of sovereign states. And also the Dutch East India Company, and this is the projection of Dutch economic and military power globally away from Europe to the open seas and, and beyond. Uh, the, the, the idea of solemn war and the distinction between just war and solemn war is very much, I would say, a reflection of these two events or these two historical um, facts. Uh, so let me give you a sense of the distinction between just war and solemn war first, and then just tell you uh, why Grotius thought it was important to introduce the concept of solemn war. Uh, the concept of just war, uh, it's, uh, it may be familiar to, to those of you who have studied uh, a little bit of the ethics, contemporary ethics of war. Uh, this is uh, uh, what, what Grotius took uh, largely from the Spanish scholastics, from the theological tradition of, of stemming from uh, Aquinas. Uh, and, and there are some basic principles here. So a war is just only if it's waged in response to a violation of right or injuries, or there has to be a just cause of war and a just cause of war is a violation of right. When there is a violation of right, the injured side becomes a judge and he is the judge of the injuring side, of the delinquent side. So there is in just war, uh, necessarily an inequality between the belligerent parties. One is the judge, uh, and the, the war is a form of law enforcement, and the other is delinquent and has to be uh, disciplined or, 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 or put in the right. Now, only force that is necessary to do that, to repair the injury that was made, is lawful. So there is a limiting principle here of necessity, which is uh, drawn from principles of corrective justice. So a just war is governed by principles of corrective justice. And in particular, those who are, are guilty of rights violations in a just war may or even should be punished. And Grotius has long chapters on punishment in the Eurebeliac Pakis. So punishment is a very important element in a just war. Now, by contrast, a solemn war, if a just war must have a just cause, Rochu says, a solemn war, the beginning of a solemn war is, uh, is made in virtue of a formal declaration of war by a sovereign against another sovereign. And Rochu says at some point that it's desirable that these formal declarations contain the reasons why the war is, is waged, so that they are reasoned declarations, but that's not necessary. So basically, a formal declaration is a speech act uh, in virtue of which a sovereign declares war against another and creates a state of war. So Rochu said uh, a war declaration may just say, I hereby declare war against X. It's a power of the sovereign to do so. Um, now, warring sovereigns are equal before what Grotius called the external law of nations. And I'm, I, I won't get into the details of, of what this external law is, uh, but there is a formal belligerent equality before the law of nations. So no inequality as judge and delinquent, but equality of enemies. Uh, and uh, this is perhaps the most sort of polemical and really uh, heart-wrenching uh, element of, of Grotius' uh, doctrine of solemn war, there are virtually no restrictions in the law of nations on the use of force. So Grotius says, in solemn wars, there is an unlimited right to kill, killing indiscriminately all subjects of the enemy state. 
there is a right to enslave, there is a right to conquer, and all sorts of, of really extreme outrageous permissions uh, in the use of permissive, uh, there isn't much room for punishment, and also because the states are equal, uh, there is no authority to punish. Uh, and I, I would just like to mention that, uh, well, uh, that, that one of the few restrictions that, that the, the norms of, of solemn warfare uh, have is the prohibition of poison and, and uh, undercover assassins. And Groshu said that's because we need to protect the person of the king of the monarch, the head of state has to be protected. And so these tactics, these tactics of, of, of uh, undercover poisonous attacks uh, have to be prohibited. Uh, then, so now Groshu said, just war, the principles of just war apply in the state of nature. So for example, the Dutch East India Company, when it goes to the open seas or to, to set up colonies, has to uh, uh, govern their use of force by uh, principles of just war. Solemn war regulates war and the aftermath of war among sovereigns and only among sovereigns. So that's sort of the basic layout. Now, let me give you a sense of why Brochus thought that it was important to introduce the concept of solemn war. Uh, the, so uh, for those of you who have read some, some Brochus, you will know that it's, it, it's not easy to, to reconstruct his arguments. He's not a very systematic or, or well-organized uh, writer. It, it's, it's, it's dry, it's hard to follow, but if you, if you invest enough time and effort, uh, you will realize that, there, that, that the uh, arguments in favor of, of solemn war, of different aspects of solemn war, have the same form. And it's the form, it's the, the, uh, they are, they're all lesser evil arguments. And I would, I would summarize this argument in the following way. Uh, Corrected justice uh, governs just wars, and it's good that it does so. It's, it, it's, in principle, it, it, it's it the only way to go, as it were. But the problem is that in practice, corrective justice will give occasion for many, many, so it's the source of many, many possible conflicts. We have to expect disagreements and disputes over justice uh, in general and among sovereigns in particular. So in the interest of limiting the number of conflicts and also their lethality and their spread, we have to accept the norms of solemn war and give up on the aspirations to govern uh, a war by corrective justice. On this basis, Grotius defended things such as the principle of uti possidetis and the right of conquest. And this is the, the principle that says, at the end of war, we have to recognize as rightful the state of affairs, uh, the outcome of the war. So basically, in war, might has to be allowed to make right. The power of the parties, the outcome of the clash of forces has to be recognized as rightful at the end of war. He also defended the right to enslave. And you may be familiar with this if you've read the first uh, chapters of, of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's uh, on the social contract, because those chapters are precisely an attack against Grotius' uh, defense of the right to enslave in war. Uh, Rousseau was, of course, indignant that, that, that Grotius dared to propose to defend this right. But Grotius' argument was that if we don't recognize the right of belligerents to enslave their enemies, they will just kill them. And we should prefer life over death. And if that means uh, recognizing the right to enslavement, then we should recognize, recognize that right. Uh, he also defended the validity of peace treaties, which are signed under threat. If, if you follow principles of Roman law, uh, contracts should not be recognized when one of the parties was forced to sign. The rest should invalidate a contract. 
Uh, not so in the case of peace treaties. And the argument here is if you allow that to happen, then you would essentially dissolve the institution of peace treaties and you would not have a very important instrument to end a war. And it's very important to, be, to have the ability to end wars because again, we need to contain their lethality. We need to contain their spread. And there's a similar argument. The beginning of, of, of the idea of neutrality uh, is here in the, in, the, in the doctrine of solemn war. And, uh, and basically here, the, 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 the difficulty, the challenge for Grotius was, uh, if you defend the possibility that states declare their neutrality, then you're allowing them to abstain from taking sides, which means they, they, they are not obligated to take the side of justice. Uh, so that's sort of, in a nutshell, the argument for why we need the concept of, of solemn war. And let me now, just to conclude this, this, this uh, little section on Grotius, uh, give you a sense of why only sovereign states should be uh, allowed to, to fight solemn war. Uh, in principle, all these arguments, the lesser evil arguments, et cetera, uh, may apply to private parties as well. The argument doesn't seem to, to depend on the status of the parties. Uh, but Brochu says, no, states are different and we should uh, limit these uh, or treat as privileges uh, these, these very permissive norms because states are different. And, and in particular, he makes an argument that states are not as, are, are different from bands of pirates and brigands, which are, I guess, a sort of standard contrast here. Uh, and they are different because they administer justice and they are oriented by justice, he argues, even if they sometimes act in unjustly, in particular when they wage an unjust war. So we need to give states the benefit of the doubt because by nature, by constitution, they are oriented towards justice. Related to this, he says, they are trustworthy because they form a special community of obligation in virtue of which they can be lawful enemies. And here he's drawing directly from Alberico Gentili uh, in contrast to pirates or criminals. So there is a certain expectation that they will, that they will uh, uh, observe faith, that we will keep pacts, that they will uh, restrain themselves, that they won't avail themselves to the full powers of solemn war. Uh, and finally, uh, an argument that, that in a way anticipates some of the arguments that, that one can find in Hobbes, uh, it is desirable that only sovereigns decide and, and administer the power of coercion, the power of the sword. In a way, one can read uh, Grotius's theory of solemn war as spelling out the implications of the principle of sovereignty uh, to relations with other sovereigns, to sort of the external, uh, the external dimension of the principle of, of uh, the monopoly of the power of coercion by the sovereign. Um, if we could second guess sovereign decisions on the use of force, if we could criticize them on the basis of external standards of corrective justice, then the whole idea of order of social ordering on the basis of a sovereign uh, would be put, put into question. So uh, it, it's very risky to do that. So we have to give uh, the, the, the sovereign decision on the on the on the necessity of war almost an absolute character. We have to recognize that. So while in principle, uh, in terms of justice, just war and corrective justice are superior to solemn war in many ways, regrettably, and regret is palpable when Grotius was uh, spelling out the, the doctrine and theory of solemn war. In practice, the rules of solemn war has to be have to be recognized. So let me now jump uh, one century ahead 
to the Enlightenment and the theory of just war. Uh, here, my two main theories, as I as I told you, are, are Wolf and Emmerich de Vattel. And there's a somewhat complicated relationship between the two. Vattel said that his interest was just to popularize Wolf's writings, uh, but in fact, he made some some. Uh, original contributions. He also opposed Wolf in some respects. Uh, there's been some debate in the in the literature on, on how much or to what extent Vattel was really just following and, and popularizing Wolf. Uh, but so they, they can certainly be been treated as, as partaking in the same project of articulating principles and ideas of regular war. And, and here I, I, I included two images. These are from depictions of the Seven Years War. This is mid 18 mid 18th century, the first uh, world war in, in history, according to many. And, and if you look at the upper uh, right-hand side, uh, you will see this image of uh, you know, a very orderly, well-organized pitch battle. There are the uniforms on both sides. They are contained. They're fighting each other uh, within a very you know, narrow uh, area. Uh, they're fighting directly. But if you look carefully behind those, those regular soldiers, you'll see some bushes and behind the bushes, you see some irregular forces. And there are some American Indians there uh, shooting from behind the bushes, hiding and shooting at the regular forces. Uh, so that just encapsulates a very important uh, tension uh, of, of this idea of regular war, which is the temptation of actual reality of state resorting to irregulars to gain tactical advantage. And the image on the uh, lower uh, right hand is a siege of a port in Nova Scotia. And you see siege warfare and the blockade of force was a very important tactic of war. And you see the orderliness and the, and the, the regularity again, uh, that's very much part of, the, of one of the aspirations of this idea of, of regular war. Uh, so again, just let me give you a sense of, of, of the continuities and contrast between uh, Grotius' solemn war and, and enlightenment regular war. So if in solemn wars, a for, for Grotius, a formal declaration didn't have to contain any reasons, uh, Wolf and Vattel emphasized that sovereigns have to justify publicly their wars in the form of a public war manifesto. So they had to explain to all fellow sovereigns and to public opinion already uh, why they're waging war, why they took themselves to be justified. This is something that both sides in our work could do and that often both sides in our work did. Of course, this is very much an exercise in legitimation. And they, they didn't exclude the fact that both sides could issue uh, valid reasons or plausible reasons for waging war. Uh, but the important fact here is that reasons, public reasons are a requirement, a legal requirement. Uh, reason declarations are the beginning of a regular war. Uh, there is legal equality and the caveat, this idea that only they're equal only before the external law of nations, which Grotius made, is pretty much gone. There is legal equality of, of sovereigns, there is sovereign equality, and as, a, as an implication of that, there is belligerent equality. And remember, Wolf and Vattel were the ones who coined that famous phrase that, that a, a, war, a dwarf is as much a man as a giant or something to that effect, as a small state is as much a state as a giant state. Uh, so that's very much at the center of this idea of regular war. Uh, there are no restrictions in solemn wars. The ideas of limited war are at the center of regular war, and I'll tell you about that uh, shortly. And, and finally, solemn war excludes punishment. Uh, uh, in, in solemn wars, uh, punishment excluded, sorry. 
in regular wars, there is an account of punishment and reprisals for violations of the laws of regular war. So there's something like punishment for war crimes, if you will. Of course, they didn't use that, that language, but there's already something uh, of, of that sort uh, there. Uh, so let me give you a sense of the use in Belo and regular war and why, why these Enlightenment thinkers thought that regular war could be limited. And just to give you a sense of what they or how they understood limitation is that war uh, should happen ideally, and this is again an ideal, war should take place only among regular forces or among designated combatants, and these are designated by a sovereign. Non-combatants should be left out of hostilities as much as possible. And of course, the, the similarities between this ideal and the principle of, of, of distinction in, in contemporary international humanitarian law is, is very, is very clear. Uh, of course, they are different, but, but, but there's already a sense here that we have to separate and we have to, we should keep uh, hostilities only within certain designated parts. Now, behind this idea, behind the, the rather the aspiration of, of making this ideal a reality, uh, there is a, a notion of enlightened reason of state. And the notion is that all states, sovereign states, have and will understand to have a general interest in pursuing an economy of violence and in containing the destructiveness of war. And in particular, for example, combatants or the combat cannot be attacked. If a combatant no longer poses a threat, it cannot be a legitimate target. And there is, together with this, a whole regulation of how to take prisoners in war, in particular combatants who are no longer able to fight. Uh, it's again all in the spirit of containing and limiting uh, the use of violence to active combatants. There's also, along with these uh, long passages and discussions of the regulation of contributions by peasants, of the use of sieges, how should sieges be carried, how they should be ended, uh, the rights of the uh, besieging power over this, the, this siege town, uh, regulations on bombings, on neutrality, among many others. And one way to describe, and this is how I describe it, uh, these, these, these principles of, of limited war is as maxims of good state practice in the administration of the destructiveness of war, or even a political economy of violence in war. Uh, now, the problem, and, and these Enlightenment theories were sensitive to this, but they were quite optimistic that limitation could be attained. But there's a problem here, and, and the problem is that uh, there are conflicting interests in the state. So in general, long-term states may want to contain the destructiveness of war, but in particular for each war and short-term, short given the immediate objective of winning the war, they would like to use any means available to defeat the enemy. And the tension between these two conflicts created sharp conflicts, multiple sharp conflicts in, in, in the practice of regular war. One I alluded to already is the use of irregular, the temptation to commission or to just allow regulars to fight, uh, to, to supplement uh, regular forces. Uh, uh, what could happen or what happened actually in practice when irregulars enter the scene uh, was the possibility of spirals of violence that the law could not contain. So there's always the specter of unlimited violence uh, when irregulars were used. Uh, violations of neutrality likewise could lead to conflicts between uh, uh, powers that claim neutrality and powers that abuse or, or, or um, 
that violated the rules of neutrality. So they, they capture legitimate cargo that, that went to their enemies and so upset the neutral and the enemy. There were all sorts of possible conflicts here. And also the use of reprisals was problematic because one side alleged that it was uh, using force as a reprisal, which is unlawful force used to discipline the enemy uh, in reaction to a violation of, of, of law. Uh, the enemy would say, I didn't violate the, the law. Your reprisal is actually a violation of law against which I'm going to use a reprisal. These are called counter reprisal. The thing is, these spirals, this reprisal and counter reprisal could spiral out of control and break also again, limitations. Uh, nonetheless, uh, these enlightenment thinkers thought that ideals of limited war were important, that they should be pursued, they were fragile, uh, but they should be pursued and their task as they saw it, as they conceive of, of, of themselves was to remind uh, statesmen and, and uh, political and military leaders of their long-term interest in, in, in containing the violence of, of war. Finally, let me jump one, one, one century ahead to the, to the uh, late, well, to the 19th century, and as I mentioned, Francis Lever is a very important figure here in, in continuing or bringing to the 19th century these ideals and principles of regular war. Also very important is Johann Kaspar Blunchley, who was a, a very prominent, uh, perhaps the most prominent uh, Prussian uh, jurist at the time, uh, co-founder of the Institut de Droit International. He translated Francis uh, Lever's, uh, the Lever's Code to, to German, and, and, and that became a Prussian uh, code that was used by the Prussian army. Um, so these two are very important. And also very important is Gustave Manier, who you can see here in this, uh, in this little uh, image depicting the founders of the ICRC. So Gustave Manier was uh, the lawyer among those, those founders, uh, also a co-founder of the Institut de Droit International, and a very interesting thinker uh, of, of, of the challenges of introducing humanitarian constraints on, 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 on the practices of war. And this is a picture of one of the first missions of the, of the International Red Cross of uh, rescuing uh, wounded combatants from the battlefield. And I think this was in Sarajevo, uh, it's, uh, again, late, late 19th century. Uh, and here, before telling you a little bit about the dilemmas that these humanitarians face, I, I want to show you how this, this intellectual history, as it were, landed in, in certain inst positive instruments and codified instruments of the laws of war. Uh, well, Lieber is, Lieber is a really, again, interesting figure because he's a philosopher, he's a thinker, but he's also a codifier. And, and the Lieber Code is a very unique and, and, and again, interesting text uh, because it, it summarizes a great deal of what appears at great length in, in a book like Battelle's. Uh, and it's done as a, it, it's supposed to be used as a pocketbook. It, it has to be uh, carried into battlefields. It has to be, it, it's a very practical instrument. And it was a hugely influential instrument. But in addition to Libercote, there is the Paris Declaration of 1856, which regulates neutrality and follow a great deal of the principles and the ideas of neutrality that came all the way back from Grotius, actually. And the St. Petersburg Declaration of 1868, which contains a very succinct and powerful formulation of the limited war ideal, the idea that war should be undertaking only between state forces and non-combatants should be left out. It also uh, prohibits the use of, of, of certain uh, weapons of, of expanding bullets. And, and the idea here is that superfluous injuries should be prohibited uh, in war. And superfluous here uh, can be understood and I think should be understood as 
violating the economy of violence that one should uh, keep in mind when fighting war. If, if, if violence is unnecessary, if it doesn't contribute, uh, it's not necessary for the pursuit of a war aim, it should be prohibited. It, 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 again, a certain, an economy should be kept. Uh, the, the only force necessary, superfluous force, should not be used. The Brussels Declaration is also a, a, perhaps, I, I would say, the, the 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 main interest of this of this instrument is that it's the first one that that includes both principles and ideas norms really that come from this regular world tradition and humanitarian principles principles of rescue of relief of, of suffering uh, it was never ratified but it's a very important instrument in particular because it, it was important uh to to for for the drafters of the oxford manual and because the brussels declaration and the oxford manual and all the other uh, instruments that you can see in in the upper hand of the of the screen were almost directly taken and and, and included in the Hague conventions which are the first huge uh, codifications of the laws of war according to many the beginning of the modern laws of war well these these you, you can trace you can you can almost see them uh, being integrated into the Hague Conventions. And on the other side, on the humanitarian side of, 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 of action in the 19th century, we have the Geneva Convention of 1864. And this is really a different thing. This is a, a very different creature, uh, among other things, because it uses the concept of neutrality in a very novel way. So neutrality in the regular world tradition was only a status that states could claim. And it was very much about keeping yourself uh, agnostic and outside of, of a foreign con uh, conflict. What the drafters of this Geneva Convention and Wanye and the ICRC were, were very important and influential here is to extend the status of neutrality to humanitarian organizations. And in doing that, they, they really completely changed the sense of neutrality. And it, they did that in order to give a certain important standing to use co-opt, as it were, the concept of neutrality to allow for rescue missions in battlefields. Um, it was it, it didn't work well. The Geneva Convention. It was later revised. It was very problematic in the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, but uh, I was I just put it here because it was it was part of this other uh, sort of very important force that was coming into the codification efforts of the of the late nineteenth century. Uh, <clears throat> Now, let me give you a sense of two dilemmas that these, these, these people in the late 19th century were facing. <clears throat> the first was uh, what may be called a dilemma around codification. It was very much alive for the, for the members of the Institute of Rhine International. And the dilemma here is, is about whether they should codify existing laws and customs of war as they were practiced, as they existed, or whether they should rather codify norms that advance the progress of humanity. And here, remember, I imagine all of you have read uh, Marty Koskeniemi's uh, Gentle Civilizing, uh, the, the Gentle Civilizers. Uh, the, the idea here, or the problem here for, for these uh, lawyers, these jurists of the Institute of International is that they took themselves to be, to have the mission to, to be gentle civilizers of humanity. They have to advance progress. They have to be progressive forces. If they just register the status quo, if they, if they just compile the actual practices of state, they would be failing in that mission. Uh, but then on the other hand, and this is the problem, if they became too progressive, if they were too avant-garde, as it were, then states would be indifferent or even hostile to their enterprise. So they had to strike this, this really tricky balance. And again, it's sort of something like apology and utopia here uh, between 
being too adventurous and being too conservative. And, and you could read their read their, their polemics in the review de, de Toi Internacional uh, about, well, how are we going to do this? Are we going to be, uh, are we going to be sellouts or are we, are we going to be real, uh, you know, uh, civilizers? Uh, and a second related dilemma is, is what I call the humanity in the book, the humanitarians dilemma. And here the, the, the problem is that if they advance their project of humanizing war in the way they wanted to, they may end up legitimizing war and giving sanction to reason of state. But on the other hand, if they are too critical of reason of state as they may feel inclined to be, and if they condemn the savagery of war as they, as they should or would, then they will have neither access nor influence over the conduct of hostilities. And so they uh, won't be able to, to do their work of relieving suffering. So there's a similar sort of tricky balance that, 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 that they had to attain. And just let me, to, to conclude, give you a sense of, of Gustave Moignier's uh, solution uh, or how he tried to quell his moral conscience uh, when, when faced with this dilemma. And there's a, a really surprising argument in Moignier that, 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 that says that humanitarianism is actually a form of undercover pacifism or, or crypto pacifism. And the idea that Moignier had, the faith that Moignier had, was that as humanitarian sentiments progressively made their way into battlefields, as they entered the hearts of soldiers, they would slowly erode uh, the practice of war from the inside, as it were. For Monnier, it was inconceivable that once humanitarian sentiments were communicated or ignited in, in soldiers' hearts, uh, they would pursue war nonetheless. They would continue uh, to, to pursue war. Um, of course, the, the other hand here is uh, whether rather uh, this humanitarian sentiment would not rather facilitate, legitimize, and prolong war by making it appear more humane. And this is something that, that Samuel Moyn has, has really and it's a very prominent element in his forthcoming book on humane war. Uh, well, Moignier was aware that this, that this risk existed, um, but he thought that it was too unlikely. He had too much faith on the power of humanitarian sentiment to really contemplate this, this other uh, possibility. Uh, well, what we have is actually something closer, I would say, to the second. Uh, we have the two opposed principles. The, the humanity principle did not end up eroding the, the military necessity principle, but rather they coexist in this uneasy, uh, really structural, deep tension in the modern laws of war. And there's a risk here uh, that, that I think uh, my book tries to, uh, to, to highlight and to, to illuminate, which is that the, the high visibility of the humanity side here may, may end up uh, hiding the still very active and very preponderant role of reason of state in the conduct of war. I, I think reason of state is very much alive if uh, under different name and under different guises uh, in, in the laws of war today. Uh, so humanity may not allow us to see that as much as we may want to see it. Uh, now, let me conclude with two thoughts about sort of the contemporary, some contemporary, two contemporary implications of this work uh, that I've, this historical work that I've done. Um, just let me show you the, time. the first has to do uh, with uh, how these all inherited conceptualizations that, that, that we have uh, are now being used in radically different contexts of violence. And of course, drone warfare is one of those. Uh, but I, I would say more broadly, the contemporary prevalence of non-international armed conflicts uh, is, is something to worry because these are governed by rules that were crafted for and by states and that presuppose uh, an idea of sovereignty that is not really existent in, in that kind of conflict. 
Among other things, there is a high asymmetry among the parties. There's little chance of reciprocity or opportunity for reciprocity. So the question here is when's limitations? How can we limit these wars? Or how can we expect these wars to be limited? Uh, and the second is, uh, I would say there are some structural limitations to the idea of convergence of the regimes of humanitarian law and human rights law. And by structural here, I mean, there are certain uh, conceptual, uh, uh, deeply uh, ingrained constitutive uh, uh, conceptual limitations on how much these two, <clears throat> sorry, two regimes can converge or can, uh, can, can uh, become one single humanity law regime to use Ruti Taitel's uh, term. Uh, the humaniz humanization of humanitarian law, this is Judge uh, Theodore Miron's expression, through the concurrent application of human rights law during hostilities has a restriction or a limitation in what I would call a hardcore, uh, or hardcore in the loss of war uh, that is reflected or expressed in terms such as hostilities, the normative weight of military advantage, which is a way of expressing uh, the principle of reason of state, uh, feasibility, necessity, among others. So these are, I would say, again, structural limitations to convergence that we need to keep in mind. And that I think the historical study of the, of, of the making of the loss of war, the intellectual making of the loss of war, gives a very clear sense of, of how deeply ingrained these concepts are. And with this, I conclude. Uh, thanks very much. Sorry, I, I just realized that I spent too much time, but thank you for your for your attention. <laughs>